0: guest today is Sam Irvin, author of the epic untold saga behind Frankenstein, The True Story, in issue 38 of Little Shop of Horrors. With a career spanning nearly 40 years, Sam is a veteran film and television director, producer, screenwriter, author, journalist, and educator, who's worked with a long, long list of legendary Hollywood talents, including Brian De Palma, Brad Steiger, Billy Bob Thornton, and Cassandra Peterson. I met Sam briefly at Monster Bash and reached out afterwards to invite him to be the first guest on our podcast. He's been in the midst of a publicity tour for the magazine as well as working on a new film, so we appreciate him taking time to join us today. Sam, welcome to
1: the Classic Horrors Club podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me, guys. I'm really, really excited to be here to talk today,
1: folks. We're actually recording this for the first time in two different locations because Jeff and I are normally together. So if we talk over each other, yes, this is what episode eight of the podcast. So bear with us. I wanted to say, Sam, this is <laughs> you're our first guest on the show. So so thank you. We're we're excited to have you. Uh, uh, join us and, and to hear um, your thoughts on not only Frankenstein, but your entire career. I'm looking forward to hearing a lot of different topics, and there's some, certainly some films I've got questions about, and I know Jeff does
2: as well. That's great. I'm, I'm yeah. very uh, very happy to be your first guest. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a uh, virgin here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, when I met you and uh, Dick Clementson at Monster Bash, he's the publisher of Little Shop of Horrors, I told you that as great a magazine as Little Shop of Horrors is, I don't always read it cover to cover. There's just so much information. But there was something about your article that just captured my imagination. And when I saw you, I was actually in process of reading it because I was reading it word for word. It's just a fascinating article, the story. It it really connected with me. And I think it's a remarkable achievement. What would you like our listeners to know about uh, this magazine, this article?
2: Well, my obsession, and it is truly an obsession, I suppose, of Frankenstein, The True Story dates back to when it first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973. I was 17 years old, and it just blew me away. And I, back in that time, I was editing and publishing a fanzine on horror films called Bizarre. And I decided to put it on the cover of the next issue... And also, I was just graduating from high school, and I bamboozled my parents into giving me a graduation present of sending me to London. I, I grew up in North Carolina. And go go to London so I could interview all of my idols in the horror film world for my magazine, and that meant, you know, I went over there and got interviews with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Ingrid Pitt and all the Hammer people, Terrence Fisher and Freddie Francis and Michael Carreras and Sir James Carreras and the L- Madeline Smith, the Linda Hay, The list just goes on and on and on. And I'm but sorry to
0: interrupt,
1: but how how do you do that?
0: How
2: does a 17-
0: <laughs> or 18-year-old
2: accomplish that? Do you just show up and knock on the door and say? Well, gonna... this was um, – by then I had put out um, a couple of issues uh, and just, you know, from my home in North Carolina. And um, I had done some interviews by mail, you know, questionnaire-type things. And I had interviewed Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Ingrid Pitt for – bazaar number 2 i guess it was and so i already had kind of a pen pal relationship with with some of the big heavyweights and through them i told you know i would write them and tell them hey i'm going to be actually coming to london i would really like to meet you in person finally and i would love to meet more people at hammer and if you could help me and it kind of you know one thing led to another and I mean, Christopher Lee, um, it was unbelievable. I, he invited me to lunch at Pinewood, where he was making a little film called The Man with the Golden Gun, and took me to the set after lunch and spent the whole afternoon watching them shoot you know, a James Bond movie. And I got to meet Roger Moore and Britt Eklund and Maud Adams. And then at the end of the day... He offered me a ride in his chauffeured Rolls limo back to London, which, of course, I jumped at the chance to do. And when I hopped in the back, I sat in the little fold-down seat, and Christopher sat in the in the regular seat facing me, you know, facing forward. I was facing backwards. And next to Christopher was a gentleman named Herve Villachez,
3: <laughs>
2: who played his sidekick in... Uh, you know, he's mini-me in, uh, in Man with the Golden Gun, but of course right. really well-known for Fantasy Island. De Plane, De Plane. And he was three sheets to the wind, oh. drunk as a skunk, and started talking about all of the prostitutes he'd hired since he'd gotten to London and all of the details of what he had done to them. and he, he, And Christopher and I started to laugh and we could we just it just got worse and worse and every dirty thing that came out of Irve's mouth just made us double over in laughter even more. And the whole time he Christopher just kept trying to compose himself and he would for about, you know, ten seconds and then he would crack up again. It was the funniest Thing, I, 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 it was just, it was insane, just to, because, because to me, Christopher Lee was freaking Dracula, and here he is, you know, doubled over, laughing at, uh, at, you know, dirty talk from Herve Bilicez. And <laughs> When we finally got back to London, the chauffeur dropped Christopher off first at his home in Kennington Square. And I just remember looking out the back window as we were driving away, and he literally was doubled over on the street trying to compose himself before he went in to face his wife. <laughs> it was it was great, but I mean that was just the, the weirdest, charmed things that happened to me. But what I was getting to was that I also, in addition to a lot of the Hammer film idols that I had, I try you know tried to get in touch with as many people as I could on Frankenstein the True Story, and was able to have dinner with. Jane Seymour and I went. I met Margaret Leighton, who played the the, uh, the the Countess who runs into the creature and Doctor Frankenstein uh, during the intermission at the opera, and then mm-hmm. she also shows up later at the ball dressed as Little Bo Peep. Anyway, <laughs> she's a wonderful character actress, and she was shooting. um Great expectations. She was playing Miss Havisham, and they were shooting at EMIL L3 Studios. And she invited me to come out to lunch, and it was the same thing like with Christopher Lee. And then she took me back after lunch, and let me watch the whole afternoon of shooting. And they were doing some important scenes. It's like the the scene when her she catches on fire, and her wedding dress is on fire, and they had you know stunt stunt woman, and you know it, it was for you know for me, I was just wide eyed the whole time. It was just incredible. But also in the cast were people like Michael York, who I got to talk to, just sitting around on the sidelines. And then her husband, Michael Wilding, came to pick her up at the end of the day, and he was in Frankenstein, the true story. He played Mm -hmm. the father of Elizabeth. And so I got to talk to him a little bit. I mean, it was just, you know, everything was charmed. And, I mean, I can tell you the most amazing stories on and on and on. Uh, One other one I'll give you is that I really wanted to interview Diana Rigg, who I mean, who doesn't love Diana Rigg mm-hmm. I'm a yeah. huge fan of her is Emma Peel and the Avengers. And of course when she was in Theatre of Blood with Vincent Price, playing his daughter. And and, and that Theatre of Blood was, was one of my favorite films, still is, and I and that was fairly current at the time. And I really wanted to talk to her about that film. And I had uh I had met Vincent Price. I'd gone to see his one man show a couple of times and had corresponded with him a lot. So I can't say we were friends, but you know, he knew of me and, and we had crossed paths a couple times. And so, but he, you know, normally lived in Los Angeles and would come to England to make movies and stuff. So I wasn't even really thinking of trying to look him up, but i definitely wanted to try to get an interview with Diana Rigg. Well, I ta- I've some you know somehow found out who her agent was. They were not very helpful. Um, they said that she didn't do a lot of interviews, et cetera. And I think they could tell that I was you know a kid, <laughs> a fan, and uh, it wasn't all that legit. So I wasn't getting very far. So I but then I discovered that she was starring in a play in London of Pygmalion, which of course is the. Um, you know, the, the dramatic version that, uh, of my fair lady with that, music and she was playing Liza Doolittle and Alec McCowan was playing, um, professor Henry Higgins. So I thought I'm going to go see the play and I'll just hang out at the stage door after and I'll try to get an autograph and try to, you know, see if I can talk to her then and maybe try to arrange an interview so I go into the theater and I sit down in my seat and before the lights go down, I hear this laugh behind me that is completely identifiable as Vincent Price. I turn oh. around and there's Vincent Price sitting in the seat de- directly behind me <laughs> with his new wife, Coral Brown, who he met while shooting Theater of Blood, mm-hmm. and... He immediately said, "Sam, what are you doing here?" <laughs> and I was I, a was stunned that he remembered who I was, and b I mean, this was like it was just meant to be. And uh, he and I said, "Well, I'll tell you why I'm here. I want to try to interview Diana Rigg, and I haven't been able to get her agents to help me." And he said, "Oh, well, you're coming backstage with us afterwards," and that's what happened. And we all went back and had champagne after the play, and, and uh, you know, there was no way she could say no,
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: Introduced right. to her by Vincent Price. And so she said, why don't you come back on, uh, I guess it was Wednesday or whatever, when they do the, you know, have a matinee during the afternoon, and then have an evening performance. She said, come between the shows, because I'm kind of stuck here at the theater, and we can talk then and that's what I did and you know, got this, this rare interview with, with Dinah Rigg and she was fantastic and so anyway, uh long, long, long answer to the question. But <laughs> that's what that's when the whole um you know, my obsession with Frankenstein the true story started way back then and I put it on the cover of my fanzine Bazaar. Now at around the same time, Dick Clemenson was starting his his magazine Little Shop of Horrors. And both of us had a huge love of British horror films and stuff, and we started corresponding and became, you know, long-distance friends. And, you know, flash forward 40 years or so... Uh, Dick and I had written a couple of th- you know, things for the magazine and stuff, but Dick suddenly suggested, would you be interested in doing a, a big article on the making of Frankenstein, the true story, knowing how much I love the movie and and the fact that I had actually talked to some of the people who made it and stuff back in the day. And I was like, yeah, that would be incredible. I love this movie so much, and no one's ever written anything about it, and it seems to have been lost in the shuffle, and, you know, it's such a great film, and the people who have seen it always say how much they love it, and yet it's never covered anywhere. And... And so I, I committed to that, and then I panicked. I'm like, oh, my God, where am I going to find information about this movie? There must not be anything out there, or people would have written about it. And I remembered um, when I was researching a book completely off off genre. Uh, it has nothing to do with horror. It was a book on Kay Thompson. Called Kay Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise, a biography of an entertainer. She also starred in Funny Face with Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn, and she wrote the Eloise children's books about the little girl at the Plaza mm-hmm. Hotel in New York. Anyway, yeah. when I was um, when I was researching her book, because she worked at MGM and was head of the vocal department and stuff. All of the MGM files are at the USC Library, University of Southern California Cinematic Arts Library. And the archivist there, Ned Comstock, was incredibly helpful in digging, helping me dig out all kinds of stuff about Kay Thompson. And in doing that, I remembered him mentioning that they had the files of all the papers of Hans Stromberg, Jr., and asked me, you know, do you think he had any connection to Kay Thompson? And I was like, well, no, I don't think he did. But I filed that away in my brain because he was the producer of Frankenstein The True Story. And I thought, mm-hmm. isn't that interesting that all of his life's papers are at the library? So so I decided, all right, well, this, this, is, this, this could be the treasure trove. So I went down to the library and Ned told me, well, there are 25 boxes. <laughs> wow. And So we started, you know, they started getting them out of storage and bringing them in, you know, a couple at a time, and I started going through them. I found a file with three copies of my Bizarre magazine (laughs) and several of my letters, the fan letters that I had written to Hunt Stromberg Jr., and so the hair on the back of my neck stood up. and. Then I started finding Frankenstein files and he had a ton of stuff and he had a lot of photographs behind the scenes that had never been published. And, um, I just got more and more excited. And, and as I dug deeper into his whole life work and his career, I realized, my God, this is a book waiting to happen. And so this whole, um, issue of Little Shop of Horrors focusing on Frankenstein, the true story is actually a prelude to an even bigger (laughs) work, which is the biography that I am working on, on uh, Hunt Stromberg Jr. And he was quite a character, let me tell you. I mean, he just to give you a very brief um, overview, he was the son of Hunt Stromberg who was a big mogul at MGM who his, his dad produced the Thin Man movies, the women uh all the jeanette mcdonald musicals he won an oscar for producing the great ziegfeld so this kid hunt stromberg jr was you know he, he was born into you know with the silver spoon in his mouth but also you know in the movie industry and hung out on at mgm all the time but he was but even though um mgm was his dad's you know home Hunt absolutely loved the universal horror movies and at the age of eleven actually met Elsa Lanchester when she was filming The Bride of Frankenstein because she also happened to be simultaneously filming a movie that his father was producing at MGM called Naughty Marietta. And she became a family friend and so Hunt knew her his whole life and idolized her, and he always, he ended his, le- many of his letters that I found, he ended with a joke that said, I have to find off now because Elsa Lanchester has arrived to show me her new wart. And, you know, it was just <laughs> crazy. <laughs> and he produced, the, so when he got, um, when he became an adult, he produced a play with Bella Lugosi that was headed to Broadway. It played in it was called Three and Delicate Ladies. It also starred a new ingenue that Hunt discovered named Elaine Stritch, um, and who pe- who people nowadays know as, as Alec Baldwin's mom on Thirty Rock. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um and he, he it also had Ray Walston who he had he had discovered and put in a play the year before and later cast in the lead of My Favorite Martian when he was at CBS. I mean, this guy, his connections were it was just unbelievable. In the 50s, he got involved in television and was head of programming for the local uh, KABC station in Los Angeles. And he was there for like three weeks. He discovered this... Uh, actress, model named Mela Normie decided that she should be hosting their ho- late-night horror shows. He named her Vampira, and he Ooh. produced the show, created it, wrote the stuff that she said and, you know, discovered her and And then she ended up getting nominated for an Emmy Award for this local show and getting all sorts of national coverage in Life magazine and then she started getting invited to to, you know, be on big variety shows like Milton Burrow and stuff. And um, it just became this overnight sensation. Well, he, you know, repeated that kind of success with about, you know, 10 other things. And suddenly this little station that was at the bottom of the ratings barrel suddenly became the number one TV station in Southern California. And CBS sat up and took notice hired him to be their vice president of programming for the national CBS network, and that's what he did from the late 50s to the mid-60s. And when you look at the list of programs that he was involved in developing and spearheading and championing and honing, it's everything from the Monsters to Lost in Space to the Wild Wild West to Alfred Hitchcock Hour. To the Beverly Hillbillies and Hogan's Heroes and Gilligan's Island and the Carol Burnett show and I mean the Judy Garland show every single show that he touched you know was successful and at the height of his reign at CBS CBS had 14 of the top 15 rated shows I mean he was just the golden boy of television and Of course, if you look him up on IMDb, he doesn't have that many credits because executives at networks don't take credit on anything. So it's kind of like nobody really knows how influential this guy was. For the Munsters, for instance, the pilot had a different actress playing Lily Munster, and he hated her, and he didn't think that it was going to work. And he called up his friend... Yvonne DiCarlo, and said, you've got a gunplay, play Lily Munster, and I'm going to put two white streaks in your hair like Elsa Lanchester in Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> and so, I mean, the, you know, it's just amazing the kind of stuff that he did. So by the time... And this is all stuff you learned opening the boxes? Did you know any yeah. of this beforehand? I knew... I barely knew any of this. I mean, if you look at my article about... Frankenstein, The True Story, in in my fanzine that came out in 1974, They touch on a couple things that he was, you know, a network executive, but I didn't really know any of this. And um, so as I'm discovering all this, you know, one piece at a time, I'm just like, holy cramoli, this is incredible. I mean, also, do you remember the Route 66 episode from 1962 that had Boris Karloff with mm-hmm. his... Monster yeah. makeup on, <laughs> and and Lon Chaney with Wolfman makeup, and Peter Lorre will hunt. That was a CBS show, and Hunt wanted to do a Halloween kind of thing, and he called up these people that were idols of his childhood and put them in the show, and got them to write a script that included them, and you know. It, that was the kind of thing that he was always trying to do. He, he put Vincent Price and Peter Lorre together in a pilot called Collector's Item that unfortunately didn't get picked up. You can actually see the pilot on YouTube. And, uh, it, you know, he just was constantly... I mean, he, he the stuff that he would do would be every genre, but his true love was horror. So when he became an independent producer at Universal, his first project was Frankenstein, The True Story, His next project was going to be The Legend of King Kong, a big theatrical sense around, extravaganza. And um, he developed the script by Bo Goldman, the Oscar winner for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And at one point, Steven Spielberg was going to direct it, but then he decided to go off and do Close Encounters instead. It was going to be a huge project until Paramount and Dino De Laurenti swooped in with their Uh, competing king kong project claiming that they had the remake rights. so universal and paramount got into big lawsuits flying back and forth and ultimately they came to the conclusion that all the contracts were invalid and nobody seemed to have (laughs) exclusive rights to the uh remake so paramount and universal settled out of court and teamed up Make one big movie, and it ended up being the one that Dino De Laurentiis was was developing. And I'm, the reason I think they went with that one is because that one was modern day, and it was going to have King Kong climb the World Trade Center, which was brand new. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas Hunt Stromberg's project was was set in you know period, just like the original film. And when you look at all of the storyboards and the script and everything else that Hunt developed, it's pretty much precisely what Peter Jackson ended up doing for Universal in his remake of King Kong, you know, several decades later. But um,
0: and interesting, anyway. Sam, uh, our very first podcast episode was about uh, King Kong '76. We did it last December for the wow. anniversary.
1: So where were you then? Darn. I <laughs> Is there any chance that, that Peter Jackson would have known about that project? And then did that potentially influence him on his film?
2: It's hard to know. I mean, the, these, you know, I don't think that anybody has ever looked into the Hunt Stromberg Jr. files um, that are at USC since they were there since, uh, since Hunt Stromberg's death in 1986. But um, if there were copies of those storyboards, and I'm sure the script by Bo Goldman um, is in the Universal archives, it's it's very possible that he may have been able to get a copy of the Bo Goldman script and read that. Um, and certainly, if he knew about it, and pr- probably did, I mean, Bo Goldman being an Oscar winner for Cuckoo's Nest, you know, it would have been something that one might actually want to seek out and 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 see what he had up his sleeve, so uh, i i can't say for sure, but I would think that he probably would have thought that out
1: and you said that uh, a lot of this research you've been doing is is part of a bigger project so is is this part of a of a book that you've got that you're looking yeah. at doing, and is there a timeline as far as you know how far along are you on that project, and what are you are you well you know, early stages of it
2: or I'm quite far along in the research. I've actually gone through all 25 boxes of material on Stromberg at USC. I was it was all kind of in disarray and I wanted to make sure that I found every little nugget related to Frankenstein the true story. So I did go through everything and in the process were, you know, taking notes and for the, for the book that I am writing on Stromberg. Um I don't have a publisher. I don't have a a specific, you know, date as to when I want to publish that. I like to work on it when I have time between the directing projects that I do, and not have you know a deadline bearing down on me. So it's it's kind of my hobby and what what keeps me sane between projects when I'm not working. <laughs> well, so, it sounds you know, utterly fascinating. Well, I, I'm I'm absolutely riveted. I you know when you say Hunt Stromberg Jr., people are like who? And uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to sell more than three copies, but it's going to be fascinating. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> I, I, I think books like this are are, are interesting now because we've had, you know,
1: it's always good, right? I mean, to to read a book on those that we know, whether it's an actor like Karloff or Cushing, or you know, a famous uh, you know director or what have you that we're familiar with in a genre. But when you get that name that just doesn't ring a bell right away, but then you get little tidbits of. What they did behind the scenes that nobody knew about. I think we're at that stage now in fandom where books like these are, are what. And they may not sell as, as many as some of the more bigger names, uh, you know, more well-known names. But for monster kids like like, like myself, this is the kind of stuff that I, I am fascinated by. It's hearing those stories that we haven't heard a dozen times over, but hearing these stories for the first time and, and kind of peeling back the curtain, so to speak, and seeing what's going on behind the scenes that has never been talked about. So I'm incredibly fascinated and hope that, uh, you know, sooner than later we get to see uh, a finished product from you. Um, no, it. it
2: will definitely happen eventually, and I couldn't agree with you more. I, I mean, what really excites me uh, is writing about things that haven't been written about before. It was it, that's what interested me about writing the book on Kay Thompson because she was incredibly influential in the inter- world of entertainment and movies, and yet nobody really knew about that. She was this unsung heroine, and I wanted to bring you know shed light on that. And, I, you know, I just am not interested in really writing about a subject that's been written about, you know, 30 times over or more. And with Frankenstein, the true story, nobody's ever written anything about it. I mean, you have, for people who have not delved into this new issue of Little Shop of Horrors, I can absolutely guarantee you your jaw is going to fall to the floor when you start reading who all wanted to direct this movie, like Francis Ford Coppola, right after The Godfather, the pinnacle of his career. This is the movie he begged to direct. John Borman, after the pinnacle of his career's deliverance, this was the movie he begged to direct. He wrote in, uh, this impassioned letter to Universal saying that Frankenstein, the True Story script was the best material he'd ever read, and we'd print the entire verbatim letter. I mean, and people who might have been, who were offered parts in this, from Marlon Brando to Elizabeth Taylor to Richard Burton to Julie Christie to, I mean, it's it's just, it just absolutely blew me away. Every memo that I found in the files, it was just my eyes were popping out. I couldn't believe it. Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> recommended crew members, including his, uh, a script supervisor that he had used on Frenzy and, and Stage Fright, because Alfred Hitchcock knew Hunt Stromberg Jr., and when he found out that Hunt was going to be doing a film in... London and and Hitchcock had just done Frenzy in London for Universal. You know, he recommended people from the crew. I mean, it's astonishing, um, you know, how how A-list and important this film was in the and certainly in the ranks of Universal and uh and how much importance they were putting behind it. It had the largest budget of any television film up to that time and the largest budget of any horror film up to that time. So you know they were they were really trying to do something special, and just none of this was reported the behind the scenes machinations of this at the time, and 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 no one's reported it since then, in all these decades since it aired. So
3: I wanted to I'm ask just, your uh,
2: thoughts on that, is, is because yeah.
1: this is a movie that I, I mean I, I remember watching it, you know, quite often on television in the, in the late seventies, early eighties. There was a. Uh-huh. Um, a station here in Kansas City that that would play it, you know, in the two parts, you know, consecutive nights, you know, back in those days, UHF television stations would have the eight o'clock movie, and uh, it would pop up, you know, here, you know, on a regular routine, you know, and all of a sudden, it just kind of disappeared, and it's something that, honestly, I, I I've just recently revisited it because of, of the magazine, and, and it entirely intrigued, and this film is like, I haven't seen it in 30 years and I was like how is that possible because I remember it was one of my favorite films growing up and then I just never heard of it again and kind of out of you know out of mind out of sight and and revisiting it, uh, it I'm just I'm kind of puzzled as to why it got lost through the cracks because we didn't have a lot of other Frankenstein films that came out around the same time or after that that would have overshadowed um, so I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are as to, to why did this film well, kind of fall through the cracks?
2: One one reason is that it was a TV movie, and back then there was <laughs> people looked down their noses at TV movies. Um, the whole you know this was 1973, but the whole home video market didn't really start happening until the later you know later in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s and when films started being put out on video cassette they were not putting out tv movies back then they were there were too many classic films that needed to be mined you know theatrical films and so this movie didn't even come out on video cassette for 20 years and when it did come out on video cassette video cassettes you know could hold 2 hours this was a 3 hour movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the first several releases of this on video cassette, not even from Universal, they didn't they didn't didn't even see a market for it. It had to be licensed by, you know, much smaller independent labels from Universal, and the version that they put on there was a butchered 2-hour version that had been released theatrically in Europe at the time. And so a lot of, you know, if people saw it on the home video, they weren't seeing the whole movie. They were seeing a very confused, very choppy, um, butchered version of the film. And yes, you, you know, you were lucky in your area that they re-ran the film in syndication in the full, you know, two-part, three. It was, you know, with with commercials it would fill up a you know a 4 hour block 2 hours one night 2 hours another night and but when you took away the commercials the whole running time was about 3 hours and but in a lot of places you know with in syndication it would be late night tv they wouldn't want to, it didn't really fit into their time constraints very easily they didn't want to do two parters and so universal offered an alternative Cut, it was 89 minutes <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that that late night could run in you know their their midnight movie slot, and so a lot of times when it was rerun on TV, it was uh, again another butchered version that would not have impressed too many people because it was so confusing, and it didn't uh, the full three hour version did not come out on home entertainment until 2004, which was, you know, 30 years or almost 30 years after its release. And it that did come out from Universal and it's on DVD and and they were able to fit the full three-hour version on there. But, you know, again, by then, I we're talking, you know, generations have gone by who really don't know much about the film and I don't think it really sold very well and uh and so Universal just kind of moved on, and I don't think that they they really value it as as one of the crown jewels of their of their vaults and archives, so it's just kind of fallen into obscurity, and that you know part of the reason that I was so excited about doing this magazine is trying to you know resurrect it from from the dead and and uh you know get new generations to see it and also remind all of us monster kids who saw it way back then and loved it, that, Hey, remember this, it was, you know, this, this is really something. And when you watch it again, it holds up and it's, Oh my God, this was, you know, this is certainly as uh valid, a, a, a film to be discussed and talked about as any of the hammer versions of, of Frankenstein and, and, you know, everything else that was going on back in those days. But Yes, no one has ever talked about it until now and I hope I hope I hope that uh there'll be lots of, of articles and, and discussion about it.
0: Is there anything you left out that uh or <laughs> get everything you possibly knew into the magazine?
2: Well, you know, uh <laughs> I think when when Dick Clemenson offered, you know, for me to write about this this movie i'm not sure he was expecting me to basically (laughs) commandeer the entire issue and then expand it from their usual 100 pages to 120 pages and we have 400 photographs and i mean it's just wall-to-wall frankenstein the true story um yeah i tried to get everything i possibly could in there i don't think there's much uh that i had to leave out it, it's pretty much every you know every stone has been unturned and um so it's 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 all there i think it's all there I, I would be very surprised to read elsewhere you know if people uncover other things about it that would be really that would be pretty amazing because uh, huh. i this treasure trove that i found not only in stromberg's papers but also i got to know alex Smite, the son of the late director jack smite and he had some things and especially photographs from his father's archives and then the third assistant director terry pierce who lives partly in in jamaica uh, he but in the attic of his mother's flat in london had kept a complete set of call sheets from every day of the shoot, and this was a seventy-two day shoot. And so he's like, "Well, I'm, you know, I only go visit my mother, you know, once a year. So when I go there, I'll look in the attic and see if I can find it." So I'm just like holding my breath, praying <laughs> that he can find this stuff, and he did. And I mean, my God, this, the call sheets give you everything. It show, it tells you the location that they're at, every person who worked that day, um, what scene numbers they shot. You know, so it was just a complete roadmap to the entire production from beginning to end, and uh, it was just completely invaluable to you know find these you know kind of rare documents. And I don't think Universal really has any of this stuff, and if they do. They're really not motivated to go digging into, you know, their warehouses to try to find it. and Because the film, I, I just don't think that they understand that this film is as important as it is. You would you would think with their monster universe and everything else that they would be mining anything and everything um, from, you know, of anything to do with Frankenstein in their vaults. But this one has just fallen into obscurity so it's kind of my mission to to change all that
0: well i i had actually thought of bringing this up earlier and i thought no i i'm not sure it's appropriate but but you just opened the door there so what what do you think about universal and what they're trying to do with the the dark universe (laughs) Uh, and i guess uh you know what would your approach be if you were to undertake such a project
2: well uh, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I think when I first heard that they were doing these reboots present day, you know, I'm just like, okay, so we're going to have Frankenstein Monster with a cell phone, and we're going <laughs> to have, you know, laptops, and we're going to have car chases, and, you know, I don't know. I It just was like, I don't, I think it's a mistake to to do at present day. However, um, as much as The Mummy with Tom Cruise has been trashed by a lot of people, I went to see it, you know, expecting the absolute worst and yeah, he tried to have an open mind to a degree and I actually enjoyed it as for what it was, as an action film, as a Tom Cruise movie, as a, you know, I don't think it's as bad as Everyone uh, kind of, you know, it's it's not a remake of Boris Karloff's Mummy, obviously. Right. Uh, I think they just have to be judged on a whole different level. Now, right. my dear friend, Bill Condon, because I, I was one of the um, executive producers on Gods and Monsters, that was written and directed brilliantly by Bill Condon based on the book Father of Frankenstein by another friend of mine, Chris Brand. Um, and that's one of the most proud projects that I've ever worked on was *God and Monsters. I thought it, was a, it turned into an absolutely brilliant film. And the fact that it was about James Whale and we got to recreate the laboratory set from The Bride of Frankenstein for a flashback scene where James is, directing the scene and I mean that was just such a charm project and now Bill Condon who uh, who is like me and like Hans Romberg Jr. a humongous fan of The Bride of Frankenstein he has been signed to direct the reboot of Bride of Frankenstein for the dark universe and if there is anybody that can do something amazing with a modern-day version of Bride of Frankenstein, it will be Bill Condon. And I so am holding my breath and wishing him the absolute best, and I hope to God that it turns out amazing and it's going to have Dr. Praetorius and, you know, all all these um, elements that we love. And I'm just, uh, you know, I really, really, really hope he can make it work. And, uh, yeah,
0: I think uh, Richard and I are both with you. I think we enjoyed The Mummy for what it is. It, you know, it wasn't a horrible experience going to a movie. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned Gods and Monsters. We definitely wanted to talk about that. Richard, I think you had some questions about Gods and
1: Monsters. I did, I did. I had a quick thought, too, on, on I think, the importance of, of going to the Dark Universe for a second with uh, Bride of Frankenstein. But well, while The Mummy may not have been the... Uh, Wonderful kickoff to the Dark Universe franchise that we wanted. I don't think it was as much of a misfire as some people thought, but I think bright of Frankenstein has the potential to do to the Dark Universe franchise what Wonder Woman is doing to the DC Universe franchise, whereas Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman and Suicide Squad have all been problematic in one way or another. Wonder Woman is kind of setting things on course, and it's like, what happens after that? Whether or not that franchise stays on track, so I'm really interested as well in what Brother Frankenstein brings to the table, and if you know it could very well right some of the wrongs that we saw with the Mummy and could set things on a on a different course that would hopefully Universal may pay attention. Then, if it's a success, hey, let's let's do this and this going forward. Uh, with the Dark Universe franchise, so I think there's I think there's still potential there. I don't think it's a lost franchise. I think a lot of it's going to hinge on what this second film does and, and the course that it set. Yeah.
0: And, no, and Sam, what? How do you right. feel about the movie versus just the marketing and the publicity? I mean, I feel like if they didn't come before and tell us what we were getting and what they were trying to to do that we would
1: maybe
2: feel a little less disappointed. Would, uh, no, you... I, think, I, think that's, I think that's a big part of it, too, is the expectations that were set up. I mean, it's just, you know, when you say you're going to reboot these classic films, it's, you know, wow, you know, you're really touching on these seminal movies that we all absolutely adore and grew up with, and you're really setting yourself up for expectations that can never be met, you know, and, and that's why I think it's important to for us to divorce ourselves a little bit from the originals because we know that these new ones are not going to be really anything like that. They're not going to recapture the, the period, gothic, German expressionistic kind of feel and all of that. So, you know, I think we just have to look at these as, as something, a, a new completely new way of approaching this material. Um, but and, and I agree with the other comment about, you know, Wonder Woman. My God, what a fantastic film that turned out to be. And it really has, um, you know, put some hope into them riding the ship on uh, on the whole DC universe. So, yeah, let's, let's hope that Bride of Frankenstein can do that, too.
1: With your film, uh, Gods and Monsters, uh, kind of a couple questions of me that come to my mind on this. You've worn a lot of different hats in Hollywood. Um, you've been director. You've been producer. Uh, I mean, even you know, an actor in some of the films. Thinking of, of Gods and Monsters, um, you know, and as well as other films. What are the different steps that you go through when preparing for a film when you are a director versus a producer, and going into something like Gods and Monsters? I mean, I know that you co-directed the documentary, The World of Gods and Monsters, A Journey with James Whale with David Skull. I'm curious as to, to what your experience was uh, on that in a film that, that uh, you know, directing a, a very well-known documentary to to a film that you obviously are very passionate about.
2: Well, the <laughs> I originally wanted to direct Gods and Monsters. Um, I read the book and absolutely fell in love with it. It was originally called Father of Frankenstein. And I got in touch with the author, Chris Brand, who I didn't know at that time, and I said, God, I just love this book. I would really, really love to direct it. I don't have any money. I don't have any connections for a slam dunk here, but I would, you know, if you'd be willing to let me have a free option for a few months, I'd love to see what I could do with it. And he said, well, unfortunately, there's a guy named Bill Condon that beat you to the punch a couple weeks ago. And so I'm like, wait a minute. I know Bill Condon. Um, He was a a friend of Nancy Allen, and I knew Nancy really well from my De Palma days, and I had directed Nancy in a a Showtime thriller called Acting on Impulse. And I had met Bill at parties at her place and stuff. And so I got in touch with Bill and said, congratulations, this is fantastic. Um, And have you thought about... Ian McCallan for the role and Bill said, Oh my God, I have just sent him the book. We're totally in sync as to <laughs> um who should play the part and uh and I said, Well look, if there's anything I can do to help, just you know, let me know. I'm just really excited for this to get made, no matter who directs it. And um so he said, Well, you know, I haven't even started writing the adaptation script and it's gonna be a while so but I'll you know, let you know, let's stay in touch. So, uh, about a year goes by, and then I'm at uh, an office at Region Entertainment, which is also um, owns Here TV, the gay network. And I'm developing a film that I'm going to be directing there called Kiss of a Stranger, with, that ended up with Mariel Hemingway and Diane Cannon and uh, David Carradine. It was a, a Showtime thriller. And. I hear in the hallway the head of the company mentioning Father of Frankenstein, and I jump up out of my chair and run out to the hall and say, what? Father Frankenstein? What, 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 what? And he goes, um, yeah, we just got this script from a guy named Bill Condon, and we're thinking of doing it, and I'm like, holy crap, you have to do it. And the he was worried about, he said, the only, only thing that I'm concerned about is that are people going to think of this Unusual relationship between James Whale, and who was gay, and his much, much younger, handsome gardener, who is straight, um, of course, the character that Brendan Fraser ended up playing, are people going to think that this is like a dirty old man kind of situation? And I said, look, just hold on. I'm going to bring you all the reviews of the book that I collected. Um, I have them in a file at home, and I'll bring them in the next day, which is what I did. And I showed him the reviews from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, all these major publications of the book, none of which had that problem, and all of which were glowing. And I think it helped kind of put some of those fears aside and I just kept badgering them, you gotta do it, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. And I don't know how much my badgering helped, <laughs> but it certainly didn't hurt. And I said, if it goes forward I have to work on it. Um as a producer, as one of the you know, many producers and, and whatnot, and I wanna be there, I wanna try to help um in any way I can. And so it ended up happening. Um it was originally gonna be a showtime movie and uh but Showtime had in their contract that they would allow the film to be shopped at film festivals and if it got picked up for theatrical release Showtime was willing to be bought out for a well um for basically a 1 million dollar buyout So if it were to get picked up, somebody had to pay off Showtime a million dollars, but Showtime would still be able to play it on Showtime after its theatrical run. So it looked like for sure that it was just going to end up being a Showtime original movie. Um, The movie got made, and then when uh, it played at Sundance, didn't get the greatest Showtime slot. I think it was like at Midnight or something. Um, it was kind of treated like a second-class citizen, and, uh, and but the people at Lionsgate saw it and liked it, but they weren't willing to pay off Showtime a million dollars to release it, and they kind of just sat back and waited to see if other distributors stepped up to the plate, and no one did. There was a—I can't remember how many months. It might have been six-month window in this in this contract deal and after the like on the last day of the window Lionsgate came back and said well we're still interested in doing it if but we can't we're not going to pay them that much money well the people at region entertainment the production company had so much faith in the movie that they decided to raise the extra money it would take to pay back showtime in order for it to be released which is what happened then, when Lionsgate opened it in the fall of that year, I guess it was ninety eight or ninety nine um, there was they they didn't put a lot of money into the release; it was going to open in two theaters in Los, one in Los Angeles, one in New York. The ads in the paper were small, they didn't really have t v ads, and the writing was on the wall, but this was just gonna kind of you know be an art house release and it wasn't going to really be seen by a lot of people and region entertainment were very upset because you know they had spent a lot of money to get this theatrical release going and now it looked like there wasn't going to be much money spent on it well that week that it was released the national board of review announced their awards for that year and gods and monsters got best picture best actor for Ian McKellen, best supporting actress for Lynn Ridgrave, Best Director for Bill Condon, and best screenplay for Bill Condon. And basically it was those awards that turned everything around on that movie. And suddenly Lionsgate realized that they had a big award season movie that needed to be pushed for Oscars. And they started spending a lot of money on it and doing an Oscar campaign. And and then the rest is history. That's and it ended up winning the Oscar for best screenplay. It also was nominated for best actor for Ian McKellen and uh and there was a, I think Lynn Redgrave won the Golden Globe for best supporting actress and it won lots of other awards at, at at different different things. So it just became, you know, and it looked like it became an overnight sensation, but it was, you know, it was a hard and treacherous road getting there. <laughs>
1: I think the finished product is a classic. No,
3: um, oh, yeah,
1: I, and that's an understatement. Uh, going back to one of the questions then, is that as far as like the documentary goes, when you're co-directing, I mean, what, what's your process that goes into that? I mean, because it, obviously it's a documentary, a little different than making a, a straightforward, you know, piece of uh, fiction or whatever in you know, a film. But uh, and David Scull is well known as being in the horror genre as well as being a film historian himself. So, what was your process in that that documentary then?
2: Well, we, you know, I was doing everything I could behind the scenes to help facilitate and and to stretch the dollars that we had to make the movie to make sure that the Bride of Frankenstein recreated sad wouldn't, you know, the corners wouldn't be cut there. If we we're going to cut corners, let's cut them somewhere else, that kind of thing and at the same time david Skull uh had put feelers out about doing a documentary behind the scenes and i was like oh you know i would so love to help you do that and so um you know i was basically a facilitator in helping to open those doors and helping to arrange the interviews with the different actors in the film and clive barker who was one of the executive producers we you know set up an interview with him. We also got Gloria Stewart, who had worked with James Whale, of course on the invisible Man and um, different people like that all lined up to be interviewed and Then I also helped you know put together the crew um and arranging the places that we would go to interview them and that sort of stuff. I let David do the actual interviewing and come up with the questions and that sort of thing. And then when once we got to the point of editing, you know, I was involved in giving notes and and all of that. It it was it was collaborative, but I would say that David was, you know, more artistically involved in uh in coming up with the with the questions to be asked and that sort of thing. Um, and, of course, that documentary ended up being on the DVD and, you know, can easily be seen as, as an extra um, on all pretty much all the versions of Gods and Monsters that have come out.
0: You yeah. mentioned uh, the days of, of Brian De Palma, and I'd, I'd like to hear about, a little bit about that. I, De Palma is <laughs> one of my favorites, and growing up, probably about the same age you were when you were doing all of your things, all about De Palma, my senior research paper was on him, and coincidentally, in doing a little research for this, I found a cinefantastique that I had that you wrote about being on the set of The Fury when it was filming in Chicago. So how did you get that opportunity tell us about that and then your
2: involvement with De Palma after that? Well, just like you, I was a huge De Palma fan uh, after having seen Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise and i in you know i was also a very big hitchcock fan and if as a fan of hitchcock it was obvious that de palma was as well and so much of his his shots and and plots and everything were you know direct steals of hitchcock and i loved all that and i loved the fact that he had used um, bernard herman to score sisters and then later obsession and things like that so I, when I was in college at the University of South Carolina, um, in film school there, I was running the campus movie theater, and we had a big committee, and we ran movies every day of the year. We we would run art films Monday through Thursday for free, and on the weekends, we would run more commercial movies and charge a dollar that would help offset the cost of the <laughs> free movies. And uh, so... We had a little extra money in our kitty and I said let's organize a Brian De Palma film festival and show Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise and Greetings and Hi Mom, the early films he did with De Niro and and let me see if I can get in touch with him. Now this was 1976 and I read in the trades that he was casting a movie called Carrie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he lived in New York, but he but the casting sessions were, I, I had determined, were being held in Los Angeles, and I saw the name of the casting director and found got that phone number, and I called up and told and asked to speak to Brian De Palma. And they said, well, he's in a casting session right now, but he's supposed to be on a break in about 10 minutes. Why don't you call back? So I called back 10 minutes later. They put him on the phone, (laughs) and I explained what we were doing, and he said, hey, I'm uh, broke at the moment. I need to get back to my apartment in New York to pick up some things. If you can give me uh, the airfare to South Carolina, then to New York for the weekend, and then back to L.A., I'll come for the Triangle Airfare. And we had enough money in our budget to do it, and I said yes. So he came to University of South Carolina and we hosted him for, you know, a couple days and took him, you know, he visited film classes. And then we were doing a big Friday night, uh, midnight screening of Phantom of the Paradise. And we asked everybody to come in costume and Brian De Palma would judge the winner of the costume (laughs) and there'd be prizes and everything. And so the whole, it was, the whole place was just rocking. I mean, er, it was completely sold out. Uh, De Palma, you know, pick the winner of the best costume. Everybody's jazzed and the movie starts and there's no sound. Oh, and no. I go running up to the projection booth and the bulb, the sound bulb, because you know, on, on, uh, film, it's the little squiggly line, and the light has to show through that in order for the sound to <laughs> come through. The sound bulb had burned out, and this was midnight on a Friday, and, well, by now, you know, like 1230, and they didn't have an extra one, and there was no way the screening could go on. Oh. So we had to cancel the screening, and I thought, that's it. All the goodwill that I had built up with Brian DePaul <laughs> no, no. and I uh, flushed down the toilet, and but he thought it was hilarious, and kept a sense of humor about it, and in later years loved to tell that story and embarrass me in front of other people and uh so it it actually might have worked in my favor in in making you know an indelible memory in his mind um so the next summer of 77 that was the summer between my junior and senior year I knew that he was going to be making the Fury on, uh, partly on location in Chicago and they, st- they started shooting it in Chicago and then uh, later went back to Los Angeles to do studio work and um, so I called him up and said please can I come and work on the film can I be a production assistant can I be an extra, you know, anything. And he said, sure, come on up. And I, at the same time, I got an assignment from Cinefantastique to do a journal on the making of the film, which allowed me or gave me license to then request one-on-one interviews with everybody huh. involved in the film, from Kirk Douglas to John Cassavetes to Fiona Lewis, who I was a huge fan of from Doctor Fives rises again, and mm-hmm. vampire killers, and the Jack Talon's Dracula, and you know, it's like holy crap. There's you know there's even this great a- actress that not too many other people know, but me. But I was like really floored that she was in the movie, and uh, and it was you know again just another charmed experience. And um, so then after that, I went back school in the fall and uh, came. I actually went up to New York during my Christmas break to interview Paul Hirsch who was editing the Fury and he's the great editor of Star Wars and whatnot and I got to interview John Williams who did the score. I mean it was just like unbelievable the people that I was meeting and De Palma took notice of this and saw that I was you know, not only a groupie but pretty determined guy and So in the spring of 78, which was my last semester in college, he was teaching a course at Sarah Lawrence College on screenwriting, and I was so jealous and wanted to be at that school and not stuck down in South Carolina. Um, And then lo and behold, he called me in May of that year and said, hey, we've written a script. In this class, and it's based on a treatment that De Palma had written himself. It was called Home Movies, and he said we're we decided we're going to make a low budget film of it this summer. Do you want to come up and work on it? Because we need more people, more crew people. Then and so you know all the people in the class are going to work on it, and it's going to be kind of a mixture of students and and you know professionals. And I'm like, yeah, would I ever love to <laughs> come up? so? So as soon as I took my last exam, I just hopped on the next plane. I didn't even wait for the graduation ceremonies. Who cared? And I went up to New York expecting to pretty much do what I had done on the Fury, which was to be sort of an assistant to him, maybe be an extra, just be an all you know helper in, in whatever. I get off the plane and go there. They were going to shoot it at Sarah Lawrence College on the campus, using that as locations. And he tells me, okay, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager. (laughs) Wow, wow. Basically, you know, it's like just throwing you into the deep end to see if you can swim. And And that's what happened. And it was incredible. And the movie starred Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon. And Nancy and Keith, you know, later ended up. Starring together and dressed to kill, and you know it was just an amazing experience. Garrett Graham was in it, who was was Beef and Phantom of the Paradise, and um, it was just fantastic. And the money raised for it, it was a four, I guess four five hundred thousand dollar budget. And De Palma put up a hundred thousand, Kirk Douglas put up a hundred thousand, and then he got the rest of the money from George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen even visited the the editing room at one point, and I got to meet him. I mean, he was just it was just crazy. The whole thing was crazy. And then after that, I um, then De Palma hired me to be his full time personal assistant, and then that's how I ended up working on Dress to Kill and and you know other things that he had in development for a while.
0: So at what point during this did you realize you wanted to make movies? I mean, you had pretty much started out as a fan and,
2: um, well, actually, and as a journalist, sort of. Yeah, I actually, it goes back to when I was eight years old. I um, My father owned movie theaters when I was growing up, so I had a very charmed existence with that in that I could see movies for free, see them multiple times, hang out in the projection booth, collect posters, you know, the whole nine yards. And when I was eight years old, uh, in our uh, summer break from school, the family decided to go to California to do, you know, Disneyland. There wasn't even a Disney World back then, I don't think. And uh, this would be 1964. And, uh, And because of my father's, connections to the movie business, he was able to get VIP tours of the studios, and we went to Warner Brothers, and I got to watch some of the shooting of Two on a Guillotine with um, with Dean Jones and Connie Stevens, and um, it was directed by William Conrad, of all people, um, and they, William Conrad saw me on the sidelines and actually offered me a bit part that wasn't going to shoot for several days and my parents said no we're supposed to be at the Grand Canyon on that date it's not going to work and of course I've never spoke to them again from that day forward um, and then we go over to a sound stage where they are shooting the great race with uh, you know Natalie Wood and Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis and it's a big huge Blake Edwards production and this is you know a little small intimate scene in this gigantic tank of water where they have an iceberg with antique cars and they're creating a storm scene with gigantic, you know, jet fans and waves and rain and all of the made stars on the iceberg. And I, that my eyeballs just literally popped out of my head and I thought... And up till then, I think if they were going i i think I must have thought that if they were going to shoot a storm scene on an iceberg that they would have to go to the North Pole and wait for the storm to happen and, <laughs> and I had no idea they could create something like that on a sound stage, and that's the moment that was the epiphany that I decided I wanted to direct, and I took the eight millimeter home movie camera out of my dad's hand and never gave it back. And immediately started making little horror films when we got back home. And uh, with my little brother playing Dracula and with a cape made out of a black beach towel and you know, <laughs> lots of ketchup and the plastic fangs and that I got from the plague of the zombies... You know, (laughs) they gave away these plastic fangs when Plague of the Zombies and Dracula Prince of Darkness played at the movie theater. And I remember we got those, you know, a whole box of those fangs so that I could have those for all my vampire movies. Just, you know, it was just crazy stuff like that. And so I really always wanted to direct from the time I was eight. And, um, and so even when I was working for De Palma, it was just I was just trying to be a sponge to suck up all the knowledge of of his how he would prepare his films, um, you know, so that I could apply that to my own thing. And I eventually did a uh, short film that uh, called um, Double Negative, and it had Bill Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise. It had. Uh, Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld, and it had Justin Henry, who had played the little boy in Kramer vs. Kramer. And, you know, I got it edited in, in Brian De Palma's editing room and that kind of stuff. He was very helpful. And the film got, we shot it in 35, and it got some play at Sundance, and then it got theatrically released with us. Uh, Feature films in New York and Los Angeles. It played with After Hours, the Martin Scorsese movie, and it played with uh, Emerald Forest and the um, John Borman film. And then, on the basis of that, I was able to get my first feature film off the ground, which was Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger and Heather Graham and Lauren Hutton, Isaac Hayes, Zelda Rubenstein, and everybody else, and that that happened around 1991. And so since 91, I've been pretty much focusing on directing. There's been a few things that I was involved with as a producer, like Gods and Monsters, um, but I pretty much tr- focus on directing. That, that's really my wheelhouse.
1: Do any of those early 8mm monster
2: films you made as, as a kid, do any of those still exist? Yes and no one will ever see them they're way too embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: going to be my next question i know that sometimes those early films pop up as extras on a dvd so well, they're going to remain buried in the, the vault it sounds like
2: the one that the one that i am proud of is the the more professional short film that i did double negative and that one ironically has popped up as an extra on the fury um the european blu-ray it came out a couple years ago. They interviewed me because they were going to do a documentary on the making of *The Fury*, and they interviewed me for that. And then they couldn't. The only other person they could get was Fiona Lewis. And you know, I thought I would end up with like a couple of you know talking head bites in in a in a larger documentary, but it just didn't happen. So they ended up putting my entire unedited. Interview on there, which lasts almost an hour, and the same thing with Fiona Lewis. They just put her unedited interview, and then they asked me about my short film and said, "Would you want to have that as an extra?" And I'm like, "Yes," because it hasn't been seen since the '80s. It's never been, uh you know, put out on any kind of DVD or video cassette. It was always just a 35 millimeter thing, so you know, not many people have seen it. And so that's on there if you uh if if you get the European Blu-ray or the Fury. <laughs> hmm. One of your next couple movies after your first one was something called Oblivion.
1: I know Richard wants to talk about that. I, I you know Oblivion is one of those films that uh you know it's a full moon production and so I was aware of it and um had not seen it. I will be totally upfront and honest in preparation for this interview I was entirely curious about it. This is something that nineteen nineties is a bleak period for me because I, I, I got married and had children and so I didn't get a chance to watch a lot of films. And so I'm enjoying this now as like I'm I'm running across these films that come from this, this decade of, of when I was in full blown parenting mode. And so um having a chance to just see Oblivion um, the the first film. Uh, there's a lot of questions that came to my mind, and, and immediately, as as far as the the overall you know production of the film, how did you get involved in in this project? And uh, because it was based on an idea apparently that, that George Band had, but then it sounds like there was a script that initially then was rejected, and then Peter David was brought in to redo the script. So what what can you share with us about about Oblivion and, and the process and, and uh, you know, anecdotes and things that you had in the filming of that?
2: Well, I ended up having a meeting with Charlie Band, who's the head of Full Moon, and uh, he had seen my first film, Guilty as Charged, and also Acting on Impulse, which was a screen-clean horror thriller that I had done for Showtime that had Nancy Allen and Linda Ferentino and a whole incredible array of, of familiar faces sprinkled throughout that. And he was very impressed with the casting that I had done and, and had all these, you know, sort of eclectic um, conglomeration of, of people from all sorts of different movies and genres and TV and everything. And uh, he. I guess he just thought that I had this kind of quirky sensibility that would apply itself well to Oblivion and at that point I as I recall they were pretty far along in developing the the script material and Peter David was already on board rewriting the first one and then we decided that with the amount of money we were going to be spending building this entire western town uh, in Romania from the ground up, that it would make a lot of sense to do two films um, back-to-back in the same way that they had done Three and Four Musketeers, for instance, the uh, Richard Lester movies. and. And I was a big proponent of that because, I mean, my gosh, to get two films under my belt would be fantastic, but there was all the material was so rich. And so Peter David dove into quickly writing a whole second um, script. And so we had some delays waiting for the material to, to be delivered by Peter David. and uh, And in the meantime, I started working with the casting director to cast the parts and you know, we got incredible people lined up. We had George Takei and Julie Newmar and Carl Stryken, who played Lurch in the Adams Family movies, and Meg Foster with her incredible eyes that looked like a robot playing a robot in the movie. Um, and we we cast Maxwell Caulfield as a bounty hunter who shows up in the second one, and. Gosh, I you know I'm Irwin Keys. The list just goes on and on, and um, so oh did and did I mention Isaac Hayes as the bartender? I mean you know was, he and he had already been in both of my first you know my first and second film, and so at that time, Full Moon had a deal with Paramount and actually had some real money to play with and with these films because um, the budgets. They never told me exactly, but i I think between the two films we spent well over a million dollars, probably even closer to a million and a half, maybe one point seven five maybe even two and we went to Romania, and literally when I got there, there was a forest and they leveled the forest, they used the wood from the trees to make lumber to build this western town from the ground oh, up wow. and that was the first thing that um the first set that became part of the back lot of what is now castell films, and that set is still used to this day. It was in uh very heavily used in the Hatfields and the McCoys mini series a few years ago with Kevin Costner and I see it pop up all the time and it's just so it's I always get a big kick out of that seeing it because it was something that we very carefully designed and created from the ground up. And uh and the whole movie was just, you know, it was just an absolute blast to make and as a monster kid there was stop motion animation, you know, giant scorpion, so I could get my Ray Harryhausen on and I was going to ask about that because that stood out in that movie.
1: Is like that that was like, oh wow, that's that, that stop motion animation there. That yeah, the probably I
2: the of. you know one of the last gasps of that ever, and uh, because all the digital effects were you know really starting to take over in the, in the early '90s, and uh, so you know but I wouldn't have wanted to do it digitally. You know, I was like, this is so cool to actually get to see this process happening in the classic Harryhausen way. And uh, so that was just a dream come true. The other thing is that um, Charlie Band actually knew the composer, Pino DiNagio, who I had gotten to know when, in my De Palma days, Pino had done the score to Carrie and to Dress Mm -hmm. to Kill and, and uh and an incredible movie, don't look now, the Donald Sutherland Julie Christie thriller that Nick Rogue directed, and I was a huge fan of him, and I you know begged Charlie, please let's get Pino to do the score, and please you know let him do it with the orchestra, and we actually for once had the money to for that to happen, and so Pino did this incredible score. And uh, you know, it was just—I I, don't—it was—it was a very narrow period of time in Full Moon's history where there was actually money to to spend to make it, you know, really cool. And um, and I took full advantage of that and and made those two films. And then immediately after that, I directed another film for them called Magic Island. It was done for their family label, Moonbeam. And uh, it was a time travel pirate fantasy that uh, ended up getting played a lot on the Disney Channel, and um, and that was another one that was you know so much fun to make. And also had uh, some stop motion um, animation in it. it. Had a stone giant sequence and stuff. It was, it was so you know I was just a kid in a candy store. It was so much fun. <laughs>
1: how different was the original script uh that I said, read that Peter David had to make you know some substantial changes did you have access to that original script or was that something that was already in the process of of being it changed was,
2: when you came on it was already in the process and I don't I might have read it but I really didn't have any need to and I didn't probably didn't want to clutter my brain I wanted to you know read the material as Charlie Band, you know, wanted it to be. Um, I definitely, you know, Peter David was injecting a lot of, of, you know, tongue in cheek humor and, and into it. I took that, you know, a little bit further. Um, Certainly, in the casting, in these quirky, you know, characters, and even with George Decay, I played. Oh, no, I love, I, I love some of his lines in the movies yeah. I mean, I, his opening know, line, yeah. There, it, there's, you know, there's some controversy. I don't think Peter David was was totally on board with uh, some of the, the Star Trek jokes and stuff, uh, at the time, and but I think in retrospect, I think he realizes that it was all in great fun. He comes out of the bar at one point and says he's got a bottle of Jim Beam in his hand. And he says, Jim, beam me up. And another time he gives the Star Trek, you know, what do you call it? The hand gesture uh, <laughs> thing at another point. And, you know, there were little little moments like that. It was fun. And Julie Newmar, who was the original Catwoman on the Batman series, she's playing a feline alien who runs the saloon named Miss Kitty. So we were obviously yeah. <laughs> playing up on the whole Catwoman idea. And, um, you know, so it was all, it was very tongue-in-cheek and very camped in a lot of ways. And I I just, I felt like, I, I mean, even mentioning the Three Musketeers, I felt like, you know, we were channeling a little bit of Richard Lester, um, that sort of feel that uh, the, the comic Adventure that that you you felt on in with the three and four Musketeers. I, I love those movies so much, and and I certainly was thinking of those a lot when we were when we were doing the movie.
1: I loved it. I I really appreciated the the blending of the sci-fi and western genres, which is something that you know they 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 do oftentimes go hand in hand. I mean, some science yeah. fiction movies certainly have a lot of western elements, but you don't see too often the, the two genres fully blended together and when they are, you know, done so successfully, so uh, I, I definitely enjoyed uh, enjoyed it, and, and look forward to seeing the second film, which is very much the the first movie ends. It wraps up the storylines, but leaves the characters very open ended, and you see the words "to be continued" that pop up, which I kind of I kind of chuckled when I saw that. I was like, well, I said, okay, well then this definitely <laughs> tells me I've got to see the second film now, so to kind of see yeah. the continued story of these characters. So
2: well, I I always uh, you know hope that we would do a third one and fourth one and everything else. Unfortunately, the deal with Paramount and bet- between Paramount and Full Moon fell apart. And, and you know, it just unfortunately didn't happen. But I just feel like the material and the characters that that were created for it are just ripe for a TV series or a remake. And, exactly you what know, I, I thought, yeah. I felt like it was almost a pilot for a TV series yeah. in a lot of ways, because it really
1: felt I, you know, like these are characters I've, you could see on a continuing basis.
2: Yeah. They actually have um, rebooted everything in comic book form recently, and there's oh, really? um, at least two or three editions so far of an Oblivion comic book that Full Moon has been spearheading, and uh, and those are a lot of fun. And, you know, I hope that, I hope someday it'll happen. It probably won't happen with me directing, I'll be too old, but I will definitely be cheering it on. I hope and I hope they're, you know, able to capture the spirit that we started.
1: Now, I had read that John Aston was originally uh supposed to play the part of, of uh of the doc. Um was that again was that something that happened prior to your involvement in the production? Uh, the changing and the recasting to George Takei or, or do you have any insight on I, that?
2: You know, it rings a bell. I, I don't remember if he turned it down or what the situation was. It's interesting. You mentioned that because he was also in the running for the Rod Steiger part in my first film, guilty as charged. And, uh, and, you know, I don't think he ended up, I think he turned that down as well. And I think in retrospect, as much as I adore John Astin, I, you know, having Rod Steiger in the lead of my first film was was pretty amazing, I have to say. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I love John Astin and he's right up my wheelhouse of of, you know, taking characters who have played iconic characters on TV and or whatever. I would have loved to have worked with them at some point. And a few
0: years later, you made Elvira's Haunted Hills. Yes. Uh, I'm sure you have a story or two to tell us about that.
2: <laughs> well, it, interestingly enough, because um, after Guilty as Charged, my first feature, I went to a party at this guy that I was friendly with, um, his name is Terry Sweeney. He was a regular on Saturday night. Live, And he always played Nancy Reagan in drag. That was his big claim to fame. And, uh, one of the funniest guys in the world, his partner of God, 40 or more years now, uh, is a guy named Lanier Laney. And I went to school with him at the university of South Carolina. So it all kind of goes back to that. And, uh, and they were co, they're co-comedy writers. In fact, they were both writers on Saturday Night Live before Terry became an on-screen performer. And then in more recent years, they they worked on many, many seasons of Mad TV and that kind of stuff. Anyway, I go to um, a party at Terry's apartment in L.A., and Cassandra Peterson is there who I'm a huge fan of, and so I go over and start talking to her, and she goes, wait a minute, you directed Guilty as Charge? And I'm like, yeah, I'm surprised you even saw it. (laughs) And she goes, oh, my God, I loved that film, and I loved it so much. In fact, I've been wanting to meet you because I want you, if I ever get around to to making another Elvira movie, I want you to direct it. And I'm like, whoa, that's pretty <laughs> incredible. Um, I would love to. And, uh, you know, so we kind of stayed in touch. When I did my second film, Acting on Impulse, I had Cassandra come in and do a cameo as a bouncer at a country western bar. And we put her in a big blonde wig like Dolly <laughs> Parton. And... uh and she's basically carding, you know, looking at IDs of Nancy Allen and Linda Parentino and C. Thomas Howell as they go into the bar and making, you know, snide comments. And uh, so, um, okay, then flash forward several years uh, to, because this was like, when, I, when she was doing acting on Impulse for me, it was maybe 92 or three. So now flash forward to 99, I guess, 90 yeah, I would say 1999. Um I get this call out of the blue and she goes, "Hey, we're actually my husband and I are going to produce the new Elvira movie with our own money
3: <laughs>
2: and um I'd like you to come over and let's talk about um you possibly directing it." So I go over to her place and she says, "Now You haven't read the script, but it's basically, it's sort of an homage to all of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies of the 60s. Have you ever seen those? And I go, (laughs) Cassandra. (laughs) Um, Let me uh, just tell you that among, uh, among the many things that I love and cherish, those films have a very special place in my heart especially the monologue that Vincent Price has at the climax of Pit and the Pendulum, which goes like this. You know where you are, Bartolome. You are about to enter hell. Hell, the Neverworld, the Infernal Region, the Abode of the Damned, the Place of Torment, Gahan, Naraka, the Pit, and the Pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man, bound on an island from which he can never hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she goes, okay, you're hired.
3: <laughs>
2: and so I had done that monologue in the grade school <laughs> as an acting exercise or something. And I remember it, you know, by verbatim to this day. And of course, it's totally spoofed in the script um, with the Richard O'Brien character when uh, when he's got Cassandra on the slab in, in, the, uh, in the dungeon. But... It, I mean, there just couldn't have been a more perfect film for me to be involved in, and we also shot that in Romania. Cassandra had actually already gone over there and scouted castles, and she thought that they that it would be great to shoot in some of the actual castles there, but having shot in Romania um, the Oblivion films, I had visited those castles as a tourist on our days off, and I knew that they were all pretty much isolated at the tops of <laughs> these mountains <laughs> many of them didn't have uh you know just like really bad dirt roads getting to them no electricity no hotels or any place to put people up and i just thought this is a you know this is going to be a really bad idea We're we're not going to have the resources to decorate them properly. We're not going to have the amenities to put up, put people up. It's going to be hard to get trucks up on these little tiny roads. And I said, look, Roger Corman didn't go to castles to shoot his movies. <laughs> They're all on sound stages, and they have these you know matte paintings for all of the castles for the exteriors, and that's what we should do if we're really spoofing it. And the 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 real advantage to going to Romania is that with cheap labor you can build incredible sets with not much money, and so that's exactly what we ended up doing is um and the same production designer who did oblivion uh we got to work on El Haunted on a and I, long distance it- you know i sent him Fit in the pendulum and you know some of the other films to look at for inspiration. And I said, if you look at the Pit and the Pendulum set, they built, um, you know, they built part of it, but then a lot on the really wide shots, they added um, a lot of the grandeur of it with matte paintings to sort of fill out the rest of the set,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: so um, this. The uh, production designer, his name is Radu Korcheva. He said, "Oh, well, we've got some really great matte painters here in Romania. Some of the old timers. I'll I'll find them, and we'll, that's exactly what we'll do." So then, by the time I get over there, um, Radu comes over to me and he says, "Well, the bad news is that the all the matte painters have died." <laughs> Aww. And there's there's no one who really knows that kind of uh you know, is an expert at that sort of thing anymore. But he said, But come but the good news is this, come with me. And he takes me to the sound stage, open the door and walk in, and they have built the entire dungeon like as if it were on the James Bond stage of Pinewood. It's this humongous set where it's complete from ceiling to to, you know, the bottom of the pit with the staircase and all this stuff. It was unbelievable. They had Hieronymus Bosch murals painted on the walls. I've never I mean, I just about cried. It was unbelievably gorgeous. And uh and it just was charmed in that way. And, and the castle, the whole you know living room of the castle with the stairs going up, with no banister like in Dracula. And, you know, it was like, oh, everything was unbelievable. So it was just another incredible experience. And working with Cassandra, who's the funniest person on the planet, was fantastic, and the script was really fun. And there were certain things like she had a stable boy, in the in among the characters and we had tried to get fabio to play it as kind of a joke and he didn't really have much of a sense of humor about the whole thing he didn't really get it and turned us down and then we're like "Ah, all right we've already let's just we'll cast that part when we get over to romania we'll just we'll we have a few small parts that we've got to cast with romanian actors to save money and we'll find somebody So we start interviewing actors and we find one who could speak English but wasn't a very good actor or didn't have a great body or, you know, something like that. And then we found this guy who had an incredible body. He had long hair, kind of like Fabio. And he knew not one freaking word of English. Nothing. (laughs) And, And it suddenly struck me, what if... We just let we just shoot his whole part. He's speaking Romanian and we badly dub it like the Hercules movies of the fifties <laughs> and and just purposely really badly dub it and Cassandra just thought that was, you know, a hilarious idea. We feared because he has several you know, he pops up several times throughout the movie and we thought, is this a one joke thing that's gonna get tiresome? after several times but we we still went ahead and did it and then when we screened it for audiences and had midnight shows and stuff like that every freaking time the guy comes on people were already laughing before he even opened his mouth it was one of the one of the the audience's favorite things about the movie was was this guy badly dubbed into english and so it worked like a charm and it was just something that sort of came out of necessity or you know out of where we were trying to make you know, lemonade out of lemons. Um, the other thing is that Richard O'Brien, who ended up playing Lord Helzobus, who was basically the Vincent Price character, um, he was absolutely brilliant. And for people who don't know who Richard O'Brien is, he was riff-raff in Rocky Horror Picture Show, but he also happened to write Rocky Horror, the play, the libretto, the song, the music, the lyrics, the everything, and the screenplay to the movie adaptation. And, um, I mean, he's absolutely brilliant and really, really funny and a huge horror nut. And this was, you know, as much a dream come true for him to sort of channel a Vincent Price sort of character in this movie. But I will tell you this, he is fantastic as Richard is, and I can't even hardly imagine anyone else other than him playing that character now, we did offer the film to your namesake, Richard Chamberlain,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Richard, and uh, he. Uh, I don't. He, and he's a very good friend of Cassandra Peterson. They had made a film back in the '80s together and had remained really good friends. But I don't think he really saw himself playing a Vincent Price sort of role and ended up turning us down politely. And uh, we also offered it to Christopher Lee. Um, his manager said he's really not doing those kinds of parts anymore, and and they were kind of right. He was on moved had kind of moved on to his uh, you know about to do his Peter Jacksons and his Scorsese's and everything else. But you know, of course, as a as a monster kid, I was incredibly devastated. And they Cassandra also offered it to Mick Jagger,
3: <laughs> who
2: who had who turned it out as well. But honestly, I think we ended up with the absolute best of the best because we had someone who, out of all of those candidates, Richard O'Brien knew Vincent Price's work left, right, and center. And if we were doing an homage, you know, it was somebody who really understood what he was doing and what he was spoofing. And, you know, his heart was in it. And it it just was fantastic. And we dedicated the film to Vincent Price as well and cassandra had gotten to know him and i certainly knew him and and it was just a really heartfelt thing for us to do it sounds like you had some influence
0: in the visual style uh, with some of your knowledge of the the original films did anything plot wise were you able to to put in simply based on your
2: experience the script is pretty much already written it was um co-written by cassandra with john paragon who co-wrote with all of her material, co-wrote the first Elvira film, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. He's also uh, Pee Wee Herman or, you know, Paul Rubin's co-writer. He, he, They all were performers and comedy writers that that started out at the Groundlings in the early 80s together. And John Paragon also plays the genie on, uh, on Pee Wee's Playhouse and stuff. And so... Um, the script had already been written at that point. So there wasn't, other than, you know, figuring out what to do with her stable boy, I don't recall adding any particular, um, I don't recall anything in in particular that I added to the script.
3: No Uh, corrections,
2: but oh no, you're doing that wrong. This is how they would have done it. (laughs) Well, I just, I basically, you know, brought the visual, ideas to it. I mean there's a scene in the graveyard between Cassandra and Richard O'Brien that I ba- you know, based the shooting of it on a scene in Tomb of Lygia that's in a graveyard and Corman did this swish uh camera work where he would you know, one person would give a line and then the camera would swish to the other person who would give the next line and then it would swish back to the other person for the next line. And I always thought that was just the funniest way to shoot a scene, mm-hmm. and and so you know I did a, I did that and a little bit of that in that scene. Um, I made sure that when uh, when the Richard O'Brien character was outside in the sunlight because he has his eyes are very sensitive, in the same way that that Vincent Price, we we, we they combined all of you know like in. In House of Usher, his hearing is really sensitive. And in Tumulagia, right. his eyes are really sensitive. And, you know, so we combined all of those. He has, you know, everything about his, his, uh, you know, his sensitive taste, his, everything. So I made sure that when he was outside and and had to wear sunglasses to, to shade him from the sun, we got those wraparound glasses that Vincent Price wore. Mm-hmm. You know which are similar to also what uh the invisible man wears in, in uh the James Whale. And we it took us forever to find those glasses. We looked all over LA before we, you know, went to Romania, but we and I was just absolutely determined to find something that would resemble it exactly. And we finally did. Um you know, it was things like that, that I would that I would bring to it visually and uh You know, there's also some hammer, obviously some hammer influence um, as well, uh, particularly in the score. I used a lot of Harry Robinson from the Vampire Lovers to do the temp score and uh, had our composer, Eric Alleman, you know, made made sure that he was influenced uh, by that a lot. And we were able to recorded acoustically with a 100-piece orchestra in Moscow, and it sounds absolutely gorgeous. It's it's absolutely beautiful score.
0: I am so enjoying talking to you. I feel like we could just talk all day. I kind (laughs) of want to start wrapping up, though, by stepping back a little and just looking overall. Obviously, a monster kid, you talk about growing up and uh, in your introduction in the magazine, the feelings that sometimes a lot of gay men have with, you know, connecting with these horror movies and not really understanding till later what that's all about. And could you just speak to that a little bit? And, you know, also during this formative stage, you know, were your parents supportive? When did you come out? How was that process kind of, (laughs) there's a hundred questions there, but can you kind of just wrap
2: that all together? Yeah. I mean, you will, when, when you hear gay people like myself, uh, who were monster kids talk about this. There's a, uh, it, it's always amazing to me how we all felt similarly in that we were outsiders, that we were, um, that we just felt like sort of freaks of nature. And therefore we so totally identified with the Frankenstein monster or, you know, with these characters in these films and it's, sort of subliminal way that I didn't fully appreciate until many years later. Um, and i I think if you read interviews with, say, for instance, John Logan, who created uh, Penny Dreadful, he you know talks about the exact same thing, and he talks about how all the characters in Penny Dreadful are dealing with um, a similar situation where they have this secret that they have to hide. Uh, how are they going to fit into society being these sort of freaks of nature and uh, how, you know, writing Penny Dreadful was such a personal thing for him as a gay man and having grown up on all of, all of these films as a a teen in the seventies, which parallels my sort of upbringing the exact same way. I, I, was, clo, you know, a closeted kid. I mean, back then, gosh, growing up in the South, you couldn't possibly be out and gay and really survive another day. Um, you would have been completely persecuted. And so it was just never a question that I, I just didn't even, I felt like I couldn't come, you know, I could, could never come out of the closet and it was, um, I was even married to a woman for a while uh, from my college days, and we once we moved to New York and everything, then I sort of started seeing role models of other gay people and started becoming more comfortable with the whole situation, and I eventually came out when I was 25 in 1982, and I met my now husband, Gary Bowers, at that time, and now we've been together for thirty. Five years in counting, and we just got married last year, we always joke that we got married after a thirty four year engagement <laughs> and uh and uh so um you know once i came came out and was comfortable with the whole idea, then I've always been very open about being gay in my career and everything else. I've directed a number of gay projects i did a a um, horror series called Dante's Cove that was a mm-hmm. big series for Here TV, which is a, a gay premium network. But at any rate, um, Dante's Cove was uh, witches and warlocks, kind of a cross between Dark Shadows and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and that that kind of thing. It had um, our first season had Stephen Amell who. Went on to be a huge star of Arrow on on television now, and we also had uh, Tracy Scoggins, who was the lead. Uh, she was the, the the main sort of witch in this coven, and she had done Dynasty and mm-hmm. you know a lot of big shows. She was a, she was a villainess on Lois and Clark, and uh, whatever she would do interviews, she would say, "Yes, my character is a cross between." Joan Collins and Barnabas Collins,
3: <laughs>
2: and she was absolutely right because that's kind of what the series was. It was a, it was a lot of fun, but um, as uh, one of the things with bringing this all back around to Frankenstein: The True Story that I found uh, incredibly fascinating was when I first saw the the movie in 1973. I I was struck by the relationship between the doctor and the creature as having some kind of subtextual homoeroticism to it. And, um, I was terrified to talk to anyone about that. Um, but then when I got an issue of castle of Frankenstein that covered the movie, uh, in 1974, they had like five, you know, the Calvin T. Beck, the editor of the magazine, loved the movie. And he had like four or five people write um, their reviews of it, like a whole panel of different critics. And one of them talked about the gay subtext and and mentioned the word homosexual. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this wasn't completely something that I was that was, you know, that I was reading into it, someone else actually noticed that. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, I kind of buried all that uh, until many years later and um, and then started to notice that other that things like, oh, it was written by Christopher Isherwood and Don McCarty. You were a gay, a gay couple. I didn't know that back then. Then when I started delving into the Hunt Stromberg Jr. papers, the producer... I immediately discovered that he was gay. I didn't know that back then, and the editor was gay, and there was all this sort of gay mafia <laughs> that that were part of the creative team behind the film. And as I dug deeper into the files, I even saw that Hunt Stromberg had nicknamed them the Lavender Hill Mob after the title of the of one of his favorite healing comedies, mm-hmm. and then I interviewed Don Bacardi and he said, Oh my God, we were putting in all kinds of gay subtext and, and things as much as we could get away with. And um, so I realized that the film truly, it, it's not, it doesn't certainly not required that you pick up on any of this. The film works on a, on a, on, a, on a, its own level perfectly fine. And I think that most people who saw it didn't think of anything gay about it, but for Those people with sort of the dog whistle gaydar, um, there was something there that I was picking up on subliminally. I even feel like I picked up on something subliminally when I loved The Bride of Frankenstein as a kid, because there was a lot of uh, gay... Sort of sensibility going on in that movie between James Whale and between Ernest Sessinger as Doctor Pretorius and and the the type of humor in it, the dark humor and everything. Uh, so as as years go on and I look back on this, those films were speaking to me on a subliminal level that was far more profound than I realized at the time. And the further I got into uh, Studying Frankenstein, the true story, I realized um, that there really was quite a lot of, of gay stuff that was put in there subtextually. The uh, In addition to the relationship between the monster and the creature, the character of Polidori, played by James Mason, is actually directly based on Dr. Praetorius from Bride of Frankenstein. He was even called that in early drafts of Christopher Sherwood and Don Bacardi's scripts. And he is very obviously, when you go back and look at it with the, the, a new set of, of, of eyes and a new perspective, he's very obviously gay. He's not creating this woman because for any kind of sexual thing, he's completely using her for to advance his own power. And, uh, and talks about how the David McCallum character... Had deserted him, and when you read between the lines of all of that, it starts to look like that they were a couple or had some kind of relationship that was more than just uh, professional. And you know, it's pretty pretty interesting when you start really dissecting it with that with that idea in mind. Again, it's subtext doesn't require it's not required or <laughs> required to uh, to uh, to enjoy the movie. But if you're looking for a whole nother level, it, it, it is pretty interesting to see what they were sneaking into this project and getting it past the censors. And, you know, this is 1973, primetime NBC. Being gay was illegal. It was still considered a mental illness by the American psychiatry. You know, I mean, it, it, it's amazing what they were able to get away with. And uh, and that's also part of this whole this whole story in the magazine that you'll read about.
0: Yeah. That's another part that I found really, really interesting. So you've been, I know you're in New York, you had a screening and and did a promotion. (laughs) Do you have any, (laughs) I've
3: done done a world tour
0: promoting (laughs) the
2: magazine. (laughs) Is anything coming up or are you all done? We're, we're kind of in a lull at the moment because I actually have a Christmas movie that I'm got to start directing um and so yeah, the world tour I think is has, has has kind of slowed down a bit. We do we did a uh we did this fantastic event at Creature Features in Burbank where I showed clips from the film. We had a panel with Denise Millay, the widow of the composer Gil Millay. and we had Julian Barnes who played the suitor who dances with Prima at the ball and We also had Bruce Timm, who is the great artist who did the inside, old out cover, and he's um, he's the big creator and producer of the DC animated universe. And uh, it was a fantastic panel, and I had my friends there. Nancy Allen came, and Julie Brown, who I've worked with many times, and Cassandra Peterson came, and it was just such a delightful event. And we were expecting about 30 people, and, and about 100 ended up showing up. So it was just a fantastic event. Plus, in the gallery section of the store, we had all of the original artwork that was created for the magazine. And if you go on, on Facebook or the Creature Features website, um, if you go on my Facebook page, uh, we have a link to – I actually, they filmed me giving a tour of the art gallery of all the artwork, which you can watch – And then um, we went to Monster Bash, the convention in Mars, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. And the editor of the magazine was there, Dick Clemenson, who I had known from afar for 40-some-odd years and had never actually met in person. So that was an incredible um, opportunity to meet him finally. And we had Mark Maddox, who did the the wraparound fold-out cover artwork. Who is just it's the most incredible we we think it's the largest uh artwork to ever um grace the cover of a horror magazine none of us no one has come forward and said there's a triple panel of another horror magazine ever, so we think <laughs> we've uh broken new ground there and then uh another art, another artist who did interior pages Neil d Bokes was at the at monster bash and we just met a lot of people and spread the good word. And they went to New York and had a screening of the movie, the, a 60-millimeter print that actually had extra footage of gore that was only in the European theatrical release. And Philippe Spirel from Montreal had curated that print and, and cut in the extra bits. And, uh, and we had Alex Might, the son of the late director on the panel, and Tony Timponi, the longtime editor of Fangoria, was the moderator, and... We had um, James Phillips who wrote the article on the Gil Malay score in the magazine was there again, just an incredible experience. And then I did a signing at forbidden planet, which is the premier, you know, comic book store in New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, So, you know, I'm just doing anything and everything to get the word out because this is all a labor of love and it's, you know, there was no money involved (laughs) for this. It was purely for the love of the movie and the love of this magazine. And so for me, you know, the reward is to get the word out there and to get people to read it and to share and all of this great history that was about to be lost.
0: So where can people get the magazine?
2: Um, you can get it uh, at Creature Features in L.A., at Forbidden Planet in New York. You can order it from the magazine's website, which is www.littleshopofhorrors.com. And shop is spelled the old-fashioned way, S-H-O-P-P-E. And European orders can uh, go through Hemlock Books, which is www dot hemlockbooks dot co dot uk and there's a lot of other specialized stores that that uh, specialize in genre stuff that are carrying it and um and if you still have trouble getting it go to my Facebook page and you'll you'll find all of those links and and be able to figure out how to get a copy
1: well that's certainly yeah. something
2: I think we would both recommend uh,
1: highly recommend oh absolutely it's it's an absolute must, and as we said, this is something that there isn't. This material just isn't anywhere else, so you need to, if you're a monster fan in any way, shape, or form, something you need to add to yourself sooner than later. Yeah,
0: and thank the you art you mentioned, I mean, Little Shop of Horrors is known for its art, but all of this, you know, designed around Frankenstein story. It's just, a, it's just an incredible project, so congratulations. Well, thank you. And thank, thank you. you
2: <laughs> I, I really appreciate you helping us spread the word i'm i'm obviously incredibly proud of the, of what we've done with the whole issue and um you know i i just hope more and more people discover it and uh and and please everybody who does
0: discover it help us spread the word even further and thank you so much for your time today it has honestly been a pleasure talking to you you have wonderful stories what a career what i feel like we're in a way kindred spirits i mean i started out very similar to you but you obviously had something i didn't at that point which was perseverance and uh, going after what you you wanted you know I, I mean i often have great ideas and just never really quite know how to execute them so what what a life you have and are still having that's just Fantastic.
2: Well, Thank you very much for
1: sharing your your story with us today. It's been fantastic.
2: Oh, I've enjoyed the hell out of it. So I really appreciate you having me on. All right. Well, good luck,
0: and uh, hopefully we can uh, speak again sometime.
1: Great. Thanks to both of you. You bet. Take care. Thank you. Take care.